Well, good morning from me. My name's Peter. I'm one of the leaders of the church here. It's good to have you. You doing well? Yeah? So, anyone nervous? Talking about sex in church. I should get you a little bit nervous, probably. Some of you are praying already. Well, here we are. We've, uh, we've never done one of these uh, at the, uh, the project before. They never actually had a uh, talk about sex. Uh, there was, uh, some of you wouldn't know, but for a little while there, I um, had the reputation of being the porn guy. Uh, not because I was in porn, uh, but because uh, I was the guy on uh, numerous occasions who went over to CAC school and talked about pornography and sexuality with the boys there. Um, it, it's a fascinating thing that uh, I've never talked with people about their sex lives as much as I have since I became a counsellor and a pastor. Uh, and I think part of the reason for that is uh, it's a very, very important part of people's lives. It's a very sensitive part of people's lives. It's an important part of uh, personhood. Your sexuality is a very sensitive and significant and weighty part of who you are. Um, it's a very, very important part of marriage relationships. Um, I think it's a good thing for us to... Um, to talk about it today, uh, for me to talk about it, for you to listen. Uh, I'm sure that you'll be speaking back to me as I talk at different moments, uh, saying things I don't know what that is or what that will be. My goal isn't to offend anyone, but there's a good chance I could offend everyone, uh, just because of the nature of the topic, not because that's my intent. Uh, I was planning on doing uh, uh, Ephesians 5, 3 to 7 today, and we're doing 3A today all right which is half a verse um, mostly because we've never talked about sex at the project before so before we talk about the corruption of it we need to actually talk about what it is and what a, a truly human expression of sexuality is uh, sex is a deeply personal area and it's an area where people have been deeply hurt uh, for some um, to actually listen to this talk this morning will be painful and difficult and it'll raise a bunch of questions in your mind. There's some people that carry great guilt and shame in this particular area. It wasn't that long ago that someone who was attending this church came and told me that they'd been to see two hookers. Uh, they came and caught up with me in May and said, I've been to see two hookers. They were married, uh, still are married, and they came and told me that. It's like, and they were kind of going, don't tell my wife. And he's going, whoa, hang on. Like, what, it was, what that was all coming out of, I think, was the fact that this particular man had a, um, had a secret. He, um, he had a secret that was going on and it just got too heavy for him. Uh, and sexuality is like that and sex is like that. And he also may be single <laughs> and not married or previously married. And some of the things that we'll talk about will be uh, difficult for you today. And uh, my, uh, I just want to say, um, I, I don't even know how to say it. I, I just feel for you. If it's difficult for you, I, I just feel for you. <laughs> Uh, one of the things about uh, running a church is that you need to talk about things that are important and that are really significant, but what it almost always means is all the important and significant things um, that people have ended up on the wrong side of them. So you can celebrate Father's Day, but then there's a whole bunch of people who've got issues with fathers and they've had bad fathers, and then you celebrate Mother's Day and there's less dodgy mothers, I think. And well, That's what it seems like, but there's some dodgy mums out there and some dodgy family Things. It's almost like whenever you talk about something good and meaningful, there's some kind of corruption on it. And I think that's ultimately what uh, has happened in the world. That's the nature of 
corruption that's come about or the rusting and the corrosion that's come about because of sin is that actually anything that's worthwhile that is good kind of gets trashed by it. So you either don't talk about the good things <laughs> because people get hurt or you try and talk about the good things in a way that don't make it worse for people um, but uh, elevate what is really significant and good and right. And I think that's a, that's a good and right thing for a, uh, for a church to be doing. Let me just give you a couple of other uh, caveats before we kind of kick in. Uh, there's heaps to say on this topic, right? There's heaps of uh, areas that could be addressed. And uh, it's been said of one of the biblical counsellors that he never met a nuance that he didn't love. And I can identify with that. I love nuances and I just find little side streets are really interesting ones to kind of head down. We just are not going to have the time to do that. We would need to do a six-month sex series. And some of you would think that would be a really good thing. Let's do that. Uh, and that we may do that later on. I think the, uh, the benefit of going through uh, New Testament epistles is if, is if you want to look at the way that God wanted to set up the early church, um, you look at the New Testament epistles because they, they tell you the important things for churches and the way that churches ought to be built. And sex actually um, occupies a pretty significant place, especially if you go to 1 Corinthians. Let me give you one other caveat one of the uh, classic tactics that's used in our society for areas like this where there's lots of little kind of side kind of tracks that you can take, right, is everyone wants to elevate the importance of the fringe stuff that is not really that significant, all right? And I just want to say to you, it doesn't make any sense to work out what something is by the fringe things. You work out the essence of what something is by the bulk of what's happening in the centre and you work from the centre to the fringes rather than the fringes to the centre. Does that make sense? So that's kind of what I'm going to be doing today, all right? And I think when you even look at the biblical understanding of what sexual immorality is, what you've got is you've got the Bible working from the centre to the fringes rather than the fringes to the centre. It's really hard to work out what the centre is if you're working in from the fringes because there's some grey areas out there. So how much will I be able to go into those grey areas? Probably not as much as you'd like me to. So at the end of it all I'm, uh, today, I'll post some stuff on the city for you to have a bit of a look at, uh, if you want to read it further. Uh, pretty indebted today to uh, some stuff that John Piper's written that has just kind of crystallised some stuff that's been bubbling around for me uh, regarding sex for a while. So um, the church has generally had a pretty lame reaction to sexuality, generally. Uh, the sexual revolution happened in about the 1960s uh, and the church has kind of struggled to keep up. I mean, the church hasn't tended to talk about sex very much or very often which is weird because we live in a in a culture that wants to have a conversation about sex with you all the time and if you're a parent here today one of the things i would say to you is you need to be having an ongoing conversation with your kids about sex because culture is having an ongoing conversation with your kids about sex and i would say that to you this morning as well and i would say it about churches i think at some level it's a, it's a shame that it's taken six years for us to get to talking about some sex um, kind of related categories and, and issues because in a sense the last six years the culture has been talking to you about sex and it has in the last week I mean if you um, if you're an alien and you drop down onto this planet and you just observed for a while and tried to work out what god people worshipped it'd either be dogs because we're picking their poo up right <laughs> or sex wouldn't it? I mean, we talk about it, we think about it, we watch movies about it, 
We read magazines about it. We watch sitcoms about it. Okay, we have euphemisms that we use, like little one-liners that we use. We make sexual jokes about stuff. It's just, I mean, you don't ask a fish what the wetness of water is like, do you? Because it doesn't know any different. And the truth is, it would be way better for, um, for us to have someone who wasn't even an Australian who came to, uh, to uh, teach today on, um, on, on sexuality. Because that's just the air that we breathe, right? I remember when I went to uh, Indonesia, the second time I, uh, I got to go over and uh, we spent a little bit of time in Bali and then we ended up in, uh, in Java, we ended up in Jakarta and we were in Java for, um, for about a week. Didn't even notice it, right? Um, but Java's basically Muslim, right? So there's modesty there is just kind of much, much higher premium there uh, for modesty rather than Bali. And I didn't even notice it, to be honest. We just went about and did our stuff. And uh, it was just fascinating to me that it just... We got back. We, got, we flew into uh, Denpasar uh, Airport from uh, Jakarta and went to the, the gate um, going back to Australia. And uh, all of a sudden there's pictures, there's people, there's things that people are wearing, and it's, it's, just, it's just more sexualized. all right? That's all I'm saying. It just kind of struck me that Java just wasn't like that at all. It was, it was very, very different to that. So in some senses, uh, we, would, uh, we would do well to have someone outside of our culture who kind of throws in on it. The, um, the rules that surround sex in the church aren't about stopping something good but protecting something that's very precious. I want you to hear that. The rules about sex in the church aren't about stopping something good but are about protecting something precious. And we have a very, very high view of sex in the project, all right? We just do, we have a very, very high view of it. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to look at a bunch of texts in the scripture um, about what view kind of God has of sex, and I'm just warning you, this is going to be really disturbing for some of you, all right? And part of the reason why it's going to be a bit disturbing for you is what our culture tends to do with pleasures is we see them opaquely rather than seeing through them transparently and whenever you see a pleasure even a coffee whenever you see a pleasure opaquely and you don't look through it to see God and to see Christ on the other side of it you run into trouble all right it becomes an idol that's basically how it works you start worshiping it is everyone kind of with me at this point so what we're doing today is we're looking through sex to the other side of it, all right? And it will be a little bit disturbing for you. Can you grab your Bibles? We're going to go to uh, Ephesians 5. We'll just read the text for today, Ephesians 5, 3 to 6. If you don't have one, feel free to go up the back and grab one from out of the baskets next to the doors up the back. If you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to take that one home with you. That can be our gift to you. Ephesians 5, 3 to six. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that anyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. 
So here's the big question. Go back to verse 3 with me. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not be even named among you, as is proper among the saints. So you know what we're doing today? What is proper among the saints? And if we extrapolate that even further, what is proper for a true human? Like how did God actually create sexuality and sex to work? What's normal? I mean, it, it doesn't take much to kind of look at the culture around you and find a whole bunch of examples that are not normal, okay? And we're going to do, we're going to address the not normal next week, okay? But before we get to the not normal, we just go, well, what's normal? How is it, how is it actually meant to work? What's the purpose of it? How do we understand what sex is in a truly human way? How do we understand it? Now, one of the things that's really important is uh, it's really hard to clarify sex in the Scriptures without talking about marriage. Because it just, it just, they go together. Like in the Bible, marriage and sex go together the whole time. You know, you, you can't talk about sex without talking about marriage because sex is about the marriage relationship. That's what it is. It doesn't mean that other people aren't sexual beings, but the act of sex is a marriage act and it isn't something that's on offer for unmarried people or formerly married people. Let's uh, go back to the beginning in, um, in Genesis. You can look it up in your Bibles. Actually, I'm going to take it off the screen. you just got to see this for yourself today. Can you go to Genesis chapter 2? I'm doing really, I'm working really hard up here today. You know why? Because there's parts of me that just want to throw out dumb one-liners at different times. <laughs> and then you just got those things that could, be, could have a double kind of meaning to them that you're not really aware of. So I'm just working a million miles an hour to just help you, that, help you today. So uh, Genesis 2, I want to start at verse 20. So this is the uh, kind of the round two uh, um, retelling of the uh, the creation story from genesis chapter one about how everything got here so go up to verse 20 the man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field but for adam there was not found a helper fit for him so the lord god caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and while he slept he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh and the rib that the lord god had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought brought her to the man then the man said this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, and this is a critical bit, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. You see, keep that open there. See, what we've got here is we've got the joining of all Adam and Eve are to each other. It's, it's like the whole person. And it includes the physical, you know. In the beginning, there was marriage. I mean, at this point, we can just kind of pick some low-hanging fruit, can't we? Like God created sex and it's good. <laughs> That's one thing we can kind of get out of it. This is before sin, right? Sex is about childbearing. It's about being fruitful and multiplying. I mean, these are things we can just kind of get just from Genesis. Sex is about two people becoming one it's about the intermingling of persons but i want to suggest to you this morning that the bible doesn't stop there when it talks about sex and sexuality in the context of marriage it says way more than that listen to uh, what c.s lewis says about um about marriage and sex the christian idea of marriage is based on christ's words that a man and his wife are to be regarded as a single organism for that is what the words one flesh would be in modern english 
And the Christians believed that when he said this, he was not expressing a sentiment, but stating a fact. So he's obviously referring to Jesus. He's referring, he's probably, he doesn't reference it, but it's in Mark 10, uh, where Jesus references uh, Genesis. Just as one is stating a fact and one says that a lock and its key are, are one mechanism or that a violin and a bow are one musical instrument. The inventor of the human machine was telling us that its two halves, the male and the female, were made to be combined together in pairs. Not simply on the sexual level, but totally combined. All right? The monstrosity of sexual intercourse outside marriage is that those who indulge in it are trying to isolate one kind of union, the sexual, from all the other kinds of union which were intended to go along with it and make up the total union. The Christian attitude does not mean that there is anything wrong about sexual pleasure any more than about the pleasure of eating. It means that you must not isolate that pleasure and try to get it by itself or more that you ought to try to get the pleasures of taste without swallowing and digesting by chewing things and spitting them out again. Do you get his point? Like it's just a weird reality. Like it's, it's a weird reality. I mean, I'm not going into it today. That's kind of next week. But the whole kind of hookup culture, right? The whole uh, friends with benefits kind of culture is just like a weird thing. Like it's just, that's not how God's made it to be. He's made man and woman to come together in marriage and to give themselves totally and completely to one another in every area of their lives and for the two to become one. How you doing? You doing okay? All right. Let's uh, have a look at a few other places in the scriptures where God uses the, uh, the sex metaphor and the marriage metaphor to describe some things, right? Because God does regularly in the scriptures use a sexual metaphor and a marriage metaphor to describe something greater and something grander. Come with me to the book of Hosea. Now, if you've got one of the church Bibles, I'll tell you what page it is when we get there. It's a little... Minor prophet. Isaiah 1, which is on page 751, if you've got one of these black Bibles here. Now, Hosea is a fascinating little, uh, little uh, minor prophet. Um, he gets given a uh, very uh, rare task uh, by God. So let's just have a have a quick look. Uh, Hosea chapter 1 verse 2. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take to yourself a wife of whoredom, a prostitute, and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. Like straight up at that point, you're just going, Okay, so he's just said, Go and find a prostitute and marry her because your marriage to her is going to be like what Israel's doing to me. The nation of Israel, all right? Now that's, I mean, we're already in the territory of not for the faint-hearted, aren't we, at this point? It's like that, that's pretty explicit, right? At this point, God's going, hey, what you do to me when you walk away from me and you want to have nothing to do with me is like being a prostitute. Go across to uh, chapter 3 of Hosea. What happens? Well, Hosea has some kids and then his wife leaves him. Goes back to prostitution. Listen to uh, Hosea one, uh, 3 verse 1 to 5. And the Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. Some of you are going, I had Sultana kind of loaf this morning. Am I in trouble? 
Friedlow. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethesh of barley. Right? Now, I mean, just think about that. This is a dude, a real dude, who married a woman who's a prostitute, who went back to prostitution and he had to go and buy his own wife back. Verse 3, And I said to her, You must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man, so will I also be to you. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. Afterward the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. What's uh, Hosea saying? What's God saying through Hosea? Is that people's faithfulness to God is like being sexually faithful or unfaithful in the context of a covenant marriage, of a covenant relationship. Let me give you some other uh, marriage kind of metaphors in the scriptures. Jesus is called the bridegroom in uh, Matthew 9 verse 15. I mean, we'll get to it a little bit later on, but Ephesians 5. In Ephesians 5, uh, at the back end of Ephesians 5, Paul kind of talks about the fact that marriage points to the union between Jesus and the church. All right? And then uh, you get to Romans 1. For those of you who know Romans 1, is a corruption of uh, worship. Uh, people turning their worship and the, and the love of their heart away to something else ends up in sexual immorality pretty much straight away. And then tucked away in the Old Testament is the Song of Songs. You know, we're not going to have a show of hands as to who's reading that for family devotions at the moment. All right? Because that's pretty intense. That's, um, you know, it's, it's full of love songs. There's no liturgy. There's no commandments. I mean, there's no talk about having children in Song of Songs, which kind of, in a sense, is kind of teaching our sex is for pleasure, it's for joy, it's for communion, it's for celebration. Come with me to, we're going to read one of the chapters. Come with me to Song of Songs 7. I'm going to read most of that chapter. It's on page 563 of the, the Black Bibles, if you've got it. If you've got an app, can you just call out what page it's on? Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah. Song of Songs 7. All right. Mums and dads, this is your uh, nighttime devotion tonight because it's in the Bible, all right? So, I mean, the big idea here is don't, don't be thinking that the Bible's prudish, all right? It's just, it's just not. But, uh, chapter 7, uh, I'm going to read verse 1 to 9 and I'm not actually really going to interpret any of it. So just read it as, as a love song. People like land all over the place when it comes to Song of Songs and we just don't have time to go into that today. But just... See what this is and, uh, and the fact that it's in the Scriptures. How beautiful are your feet in sandals, O noble daughter. Your rounded thighs are like jewels, the work of a master hand. Your navel is a rounded bowl that never lacks mixed wine. Your belly is a heap of wheat encircled with lilies. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle. Your neck is like an ivory tower. Your eyes are pools in Heshbon by the gate of bath Rabbim, And your nose is like the Tower of Lebanon. That's meant to be a positive thing. <laughs> which looks toward Damascus. Your head crowns you like Carmel and your flowing locks are like purple. A king is held captive in the tresses. How beautiful and pleasant are you, O loved one, with all your delights. Your stature is like a palm tree and your breasts are like its clusters. I say I will climb the palm tree and lay hold of its fruit. O may your breasts be like clusters of the vine 
and the scent of your breath like apples and your mouth like the best wine. That's in the Bible. <laughs> so let me ask the, the question that I asked before again. What is the purpose of sexuality? And I want to say to you that the purpose of sex and the purpose of sexuality doesn't end with humanity. Everything ends in God. So sex is a way, like this is the spin-out thing, right? And I hope to twist your arm by the end of the message because this will blow a fuse probably in your head, right? Sex is a way to know God more fully. Sex is a way to know God more fully. You see, sex in the Bible is a metaphor used in the Scriptures to describe God's relationship to His people, both in faithfulness and unfaithfulness. You see, the reason why, the ultimate reason why we are sexual is to make God more knowable. Read with me another section of Scripture. This one's quite long. Can you go to Ezekiel 16? Ezekiel 16, page 702. In the app, that's page uh, 25A1, section 3. Ezekiel 16. So this is God talking about his faithless bride, Israel. Verse 4. And as for your birth, on the day you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling cloths. No I pitied you to do any of these things to you out of compassion for you, for you were cast out in the open field, for you were abhorred on the day that you were born. And when I passed by you and saw you wallowing in your blood, I said to you in your blood, Live! I said to you in your blood, live. I made you flourish like a plant of the field and you grew up and became tall and arrived at full adornment. Your breasts were formed and your hair had grown, yet you were naked and bare. It's pretty hard to get away from the explicit nature of this, right? When I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love. And I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. What just happened? He married his people. <laughs> That's what he did. He loved his people so much, he married them and he made a covenant with them. Then I bathed you with water and washed off your blood from you and anointed you with oil. I clothed you also with embroidered cloth and shod you with fine leather. I wrapped you in fine linen and covered you with silk. And then go down to verse 13. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver and your clothing was of fine linen and silk and embroidered cloth. You ate fine flour and honey and oil. You grew exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty and your renown went forth among the nations because of your beauty for it was perfect through the splendor that I had bestowed on you, declares the Lord God. What's he saying? He's saying, I had so looked after my wife. I so looked after and, and my care and my love for her made her stunningly beautiful. Go down to verse 32. Adulterous wife who receives strangers instead of her husband 
Men, gives, give, men give gifts to all prostitutes, but you gave your gifts to all your lovers, bribing them to come to you from every side with your whorings. What did his bride do? His bride went and just gave herself and she wasn't even as good as a prostitute. Because normally you get paid for being a prostitute, but she's giving herself away. Men give gifts to all prostitutes, but you gave your gifts, this is verse 33, to all your lovers, bribing them to come to you from every side with your whorings. Verse 34, so you were different from other women in your whorings. No one solicited you to play the whore and you gave payment while no payment was given to you. Therefore, you were different. Like It's like his people are not even as good as a prostitute. They're actually worse than a prostitute. And I'm not bagging prostitutes at this point, but I'm just talking about the whole thing about sexuality. I mean, we know, right, that Jesus was a friend of prostitutes and sinners. Okay, and that's where we go to. Now, now go down to verse 35. Therefore, O prostitute, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, because your lust was poured out and your nakedness uncovered in your whorings with your lovers and with all your abominable idols and because of the blood of your children that you gave to them, therefore behold, I will gather all your lovers with whom you took pleasure, all those you loved and all those you hated, I will gather them against you from every side and will uncover your nakedness to them that they may see all your, your nakedness. Now what's God doing here? He's just going, I'm going to judge you for what you did in deserting me. That's what I'm going to do. But he doesn't desert them. Go down to verse 59. For thus says the Lord God, I will deal with you as you have done. You who have despised the oath in breaking the covenant, yet, yet, I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth and I will establish for you an everlasting covenant then you will remember that your ways sorry then you will remember your ways and be ashamed when you take your sisters both your elder and your younger and i give them to you as daughters but not on account of the covenant with you i will establish my covenant with you and you shall know that i am the lord that you may remember and be confounded and never open your mouth again because of your shame when i atone for you for all that you have done declares the lord you know what that bit's about it's about God atoning and, and paying the price that his prostitute wife ought to have paid herself. She was the one that was unfaithful. She was the one that went away from him. And that's all of us, folks. We're, we're everyone here, it doesn't matter whether you love Jesus or not, has walked away from God and said, I don't want to have anything to do with you. And we've followed after other things. We've loved other things. And the good news this morning for all of you today... <laughs> is that God is a kind of God who doesn't just mete out justice on his unfaithful children, but he's a God who loves them and pays the price to get them back. Amen? Amen. John Piper writes this, God created us with sexual passion so that there would be language to describe what it means to cleave to him in love and what it means to turn away from him to others. God created us in his image, male and female, with personhood and sexual passions so that when he comes to us in this world, there would be these powerful words and images to describe the promises and the pleasures of our covenant relationship with him through Christ. God made us powerfully sexual so that he would be more deeply knowable. We were given the power to know each other sexually so that we might have some hint of what it would be like to know Christ supremely. 
Therefore, all misuses of our sexuality, adultery, fornication, which is sex outside of marriage, illicit fantasies, masturbation, pornography, homosexual behaviour, rape, sexual child abuse, bestiality, bestiality, that's a bad one to stumble over, uh, exhibitionism, exhibitionism and so on, distort the true knowledge of God. God means for human sexual life to be a pointer and foretaste of our relationship with him. I so reckon he's onto it. I mean, you only have to go through the scriptures, especially through the Hebrew scriptures, and you see this kind of popping up all the time. And Adam knew Eve, his wife. It's not like Adam hooked up with his wife. Adam had a friend with benefits. It's not any of that, is it? It's like Adam knew his wife, which means they had sex, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. When Joseph woke from sleep in uh, Matthew 1, verse 24 to 25, the father of Jesus, the earthly father of Jesus, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Sex is never, ever just a physical act. It, it never is. It involves the whole person and it requires to be done well and to be done properly. It requires that the whole of two people are actually giving themselves to each other. That's the goal and the objective. And it's meant to model the relationship that we have with God. The deep communion, the deep blessing, the deep knowing of one another. I mean, I think that's why, and this kind of has some currency all over the place but I think that's why people talk about the fact that sex in a marriage relationship is like a canary in a coal mine you heard this one they put canaries in coal mines before they I mean up until the 80s apparently according to the Smithsonian uh, um, journal that came out they, they had them in uh, coal mines up to about 86 and the bottom line was that birds were more susceptible to toxic kind of gases than what humans were so basically if you're down the mine and you're mining and the canary dropped off the perch and died you just better get out of there all right <laughs> That's kind of the deal, right? It just tells you that there's something wrong, you know? And I, I just want to say to you this morning, I, th I, think, it's, I think it's right. I think, I think a relationship that's going really, really well, notwithstanding some other struggles that might kind of push in on that, a relationship, a marriage relationship that's going really well will have a natural expression in sex, okay? Now, some of you are going, yeah, but what about this and that and this? And there's probably a hundred things that you're saying, what about right now, right? I can't deal with all of the whatabouts. But there are things that kind of impinge upon that. But I think it's basically true. I think when there's two people who are deeply in love and offering themselves to each other, that will be a natural outcome of it. You see, every pleasure in this world is ultimately derived from Jesus. Every pleasure ultimately points to him. See, right now I want to say something that I haven't scripted. <laughs> it is. Let me have a drink and I'll have a think about that. I'll just say it really quickly and I hope it does get me in trouble. I think God made men to be attractive to a naked female's body. All right, I just think that's part of the whole mix, okay? I think that's kind of how God's made it to work, right? But the thing is, if, if, if men, if, if, if there's an attraction there, which I trust that there is, 
And ladies, if there's any other thing in your life that you look at and you think it's really beautiful, you know, you know what the end goal of all of that is, is Jesus made all of it. So he's better than that. <laughs> he's better than that. Now, do you get my point? It doesn't matter whatever it is, and I'm not saying that has to be the ultimate for men, right? Whatever you would put on the stage up the front here as the ultimate, most amazing beauty for you, Jesus is better than that because he made all of it. So you're meant to look through it if that makes sense, not at it. Or just at it. Sex is not an end in itself. It points to who God is and the kind of communion and intimacy and closeness that's meant to happen with Him. Now that's a mind-blowing thought. And I'm not saying that we need to have any kind of sexual relations with God. That's not what I'm saying. I'm talking about the deep level of knowing and intimacy that occurs in human sexuality is a pointer to the depth of knowing and intimacy that's meant to happen between God and us. Can you go back to Hosea 2? I just want to see this for yourselves. I want you to see this for yourselves, I should say. Hosea 2, verse 14 to 16. Listen to God speaking about the nation of Israel, who is his bride. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband and no longer will you call me my Baal, an idol. Go down to verse 19. And I'll betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and mercy. I'll betroth you to me in faithfulness. Listen to this. And you, will, and you shall, what's the next word? Know the Lord. Now here's a question. Here's my question for you. What kind of know is that? Now, I'm not suggesting at any level that God's saying he wants to have sex with us, right? Or that we should, there should be anything like that. But like, if you look at the Old Testament about what the word know is, when Adam knew his wife Eve, when Joseph knew Mary, we're not just talking about an intellectual thing. Here's what John Piper says, I think it is virtually impossible to read this and then honestly say, so he's talking about Hosea here, that knowing God as God intends to be known by his people in the new covenant, simply means mental awareness or understanding or acquaintance with God. Not in a million years is that what knowing God means here. This is the knowing of a lover, not a scholar. A scholar can be a lover, but a scholar or a pastor doesn't know God until he is a lover. You can know about God by research, but until the researcher is ravished by what he sees, he doesn't know God for who he really is. Isn't that rich? That's the end point. That's where we're going. See, sex is a good thing. Sexual love flourishes as a loving intimacy between one husband and one wife. It's created by God for marriage between a man and a woman. It's for procreation. It's for having children, but it's also for pleasure, for joy, communion, for celebration. It's where we give ourselves to each other in a desire to deeply know and to be joined with one another in every area of our lives and I'll tell you what it images God 
and images God. Listen to David Powerson, who's a biblical counsellor. He says this, The erotic is meant to be a bright expression of mutual loving kindness. Sex thrives in a content of commitment, safety, trust, affection, giving, closeness, intimacy, generosity. The erotic flourishes as one normal, everyday expression of genuine love within marriage. A man and woman are naked and unashamed with each other and under God. They give mutual pleasure. Sex with your spouse can be simple, self-giving, freely given and freely received. Your sexual interactions can express honesty, laughter, play, prayer and ecstasy. Sex can be open before the eyes of God, approved in your own conscience and approved in the eyes of family and friends who care for you. It's a good thing. Can you come back with me to uh, Ephesians 5? And uh, we're just going to finish here. Ephesians 5. At verse 25, so that's page 978. Husbands, this is verse 5 of Ephesians, sorry, verse 25 of Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. I trust that you can hear the, the, uh, the same kind of reverberations of uh, what we're reading in uh, in Ezekiel 16 there before. So that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Many a man has quoted that one. I'm kidding, that was a bit irreverent. Um, happy wife is a happy life. Is that the Australian version of it? That's not what we're doing here, just saying. Uh, for no one ever hated his own flesh but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. Therefore, listen to this, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, cleave to her, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Oh yeah, you probably haven't noticed, I just want to finish on this note, you probably haven't noticed, um, I, I tend to give lots of personal stories and I haven't given you any personal stories today, <laughs> okay? Yeah. And uh, I just, I want to finish on one, but it's, it's one that doesn't have to do with sex, it has to do with marriage, that's what it is. I think, uh, and I, I would just... I would just encourage you, I mean, I, I do think that it's important if you're struggling in this area that you get some help from some people, but you also need to understand that uh, when you're married and you go and you get some help from someone else, that you probably just want to make sure you're having some conversations with your spouse about it. And I don't mean this, there's no pun intended in what I'm about to say, but you do uncover your spouse when you talk about these things with someone else, okay? So you're just wanting to be sensitive and loving about that. Uh, and, and be careful about that. But let me finish on something personal specifically to do with marriage. So right here, we're just kind of zooming out a little bit um, away from the topic that we've been directly dealing with most of the time today. Before I, uh, I got married, I thought marriage was going to be good. <laughs> All right? I did. And some of you go, but it wasn't. No, it, it's just, it's been amazing, right? But I, th I thought... It was going to be good. I, I had my ideas about what marriage was going to be like and they were good ideas, all right? Um, 
but I had them. They were ideas about what I thought marriage was going to be. There were times, as, as I know that every marriage has, early on where you just kind of go, man, like sometimes you, your ideas about what it was going to be is end up just being a little, they get challenged a little bit by things that you need to go through in your life and, and probably a, a little bit of that happened, just the same as it, it would happen to everyone else. But one of the things that started to happen, and it really kind of snuck up on me to be, uh, to be really transparent, is uh, the personhood of my wife and myself began to intermingle. And there was a two becoming one that started to happen with my wife and I that was a deep mystery to me. And we've ended up having a deep communion and knowledge of each other that I didn't even think existed. Like if you went right back and you, you spoke to me before I got married and you said, do you think that level of intimacy and closeness and communion and oneness would be possible? I would, I would just be going, what are you even talking about? Like I've got my own ideas about what that might actually look like. What are you talking about? I've never seen that before. And I want to just say to you, it's wonderful. It's wonderful. You know, I, I feel very strongly with my wife. We have a communion and a depth of relationship that money just can't buy that. And it's precious and it's deeply, deeply personal. It's priceless. And do you know what? It's really hard to describe. It's really hard to describe and I know there's going to be a whole bunch of you married couples here today and you go, yeah, I, I know what you're talking about but it's like, could you get up here and I'll give you 25 words and tell me what that is? Well, you don't, right? Because you get in the back end of Ephesians 5 and, and God's kind of saying through Paul, like the, the kind of closeness, the personal closeness that you could have with God is just a mystery and the, and the mystery of two becoming one flesh in marriage is a mystery too. It's a beautiful, beautiful mystery. Does anyone know what I'm talking about? Any married couple know what I'm talking about? It's like, God, I didn't, this is like in a, a whole nother category to anything I had in my head before I got married. Let me uh, finish with this. There is a depth of relationship with Jesus that you know nothing about. Like, like Seriously. You, you haven't got a clue. And I'm not saying that to bag it in any way. I'm just going, that, that's, that's what this thing is, you know. Like when you, when you walk out this reality of marriage where the two kind of become one and you just go, there is something here that I didn't even have categories for. And then you get to Ephesians 5 and Paul's going, hey, you know what that means? It means that your relationship with God and how close you can be with God, it, there's a communion and an intimacy and a closeness to him that you don't know anything about. You see, this is the kind of thing that people who don't know Jesus need to see, right? They need to see people who love Jesus who just go, oh, I wouldn't give him up for anything. <laughs> I don't care what you would say to me, I wouldn't give him up for anything because he is incredible. We're so close. I get up in the morning and um, I just say to God, what are we going to do today? And it begs the question, doesn't it? Like, how do you get there? How do you get to that place where you don't even know how to get there? Well, you keep being personal with him. You, you, you ask questions of him like that. You get up in the morning, you go, how do, what are we going to do today? You keep pushing into a relationship with him. You see, the, the, probably the closest 
without any doubt, the closest human relationship that you can have is marriage, right? So here's the thing. Here's my tip for you. Model the way that you relate to God on the way a good marriage operates. What happens when you get home after work when you're in a good marriage? Well, your spouse says, how was your day? All right? Now, is your spouse asking you how your day was because they need some information? No, they're not. They're asking you how your day was, probably partly because they want some information, right? especially if there was something big that was happening, but probably even more than that. They're asking you how your day was because they want to hear you. They want to know you. So do you know what? It might even be, and this might feel really weird to you, it might even really be the case that you could get to the end of a day and you could... I mean, I think God wants to hear how, how your day was. Now, the weird thing for us is we just go, yeah, but doesn't he know everything? Yeah, he does know everything, right? But prayer is not about the transfer of information. Otherwise, you wouldn't need to transfer any information because he knows everything, right? Prayer is actually about relationship. It's about talking to someone who is, is loving and has, has sent his son to die on the cross for you so that you don't have to be this rebellious, unfaithful person but you can actually come back and be part of his family again. That's, and then prayer is like, well, I need to talk to Dad. I need to talk to Jesus. I need, I need to talk to, to God, you know, the, the Trinity, right? The Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We need, we need to communicate. We need to be personal with them.